Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you for joining us here on this program as we uh, dive into a, a wonderful a guest that we're going to have here who's going to share with us a, quite a remarkable story that I think you're really going to enjoy and you're going to want to go to their, his website as well. Uh, we also encourage you to join us here on this program four times a week now, four times. Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. The fourth time, you thought I'd forget, 9 a.m. on Wednesdays, 9 a.m. following the news on Wednesdays on this fine station as we continue to bring you uh, guests I think that you uh, really do enjoy. And uh, it's, it, it bears out because we're fast approaching 35,000 listens on SoundCloud and other podcast outlets where we are linked to, and we thank you for listening as well as reposting, SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and other locations uh, that uh, we are uh, uh, listened through those particular portals, if you will. We are also on YouTube where you can watch these interviews, and I hope that you will take the time to do just that. Watch these interviews and enjoy uh, you can see me in the uh, foreground there. You can see uh, all kinds of wonderful little things in the background. Like in this case, uh, this is a shrine back in Ireland if you're watching YouTube. If you're not, you might want to. So you can see that shrine. It's a beautiful shrine there in, uh, in uh, uh, County Galway. Connemara is the uh, general location, I believe, is where this particular picture was uh, taken. We also encourage you to participate in the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s. Go within, uh, utilize your intuition, and stop and find that quiet, still, calm, peaceful place where you can re-energize, rejuvenate, and uh, reconnect with self, as well as, some would say, even with the divine. We hope that you will do just that. And if these programs resonate with you and you'd like to become a part of the work that we are doing, we would greatly appreciate any financial support you can give us. That's why we have a PayPal and Patreon account for your security as well as ours. Our program today is going to be focusing on some lessons in love from a nonverbal boy and having to do with... Uh, um, a father and a family's uh, uh, dealing with uh, an incredible situation that uh, I can relate to only in one area. But before I uh, share that, let's bring on our guest. His name is Dr. Stephen Gardner, author of Jabberwocky, Lessons of Love from a Boy Who Never Spoke. And uh, Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure to have you with us. Richard, it's my pleasure to be on. Thank you. You have an extraordinary story of your son who um, basically, uh, and this is where you and I kind of uh, can relate, uh, had cerebral palsy. My first wife had a cerebral or cerebral palsy, uh, and um, yet she was still able to get around and so forth. She was totally blind. In your case, your son also could not speak. Was Share with me, uh, I know that cerebral palsy is more of a, I guess, a genetic condition, but what was the cause of his inability to speak? Was that also the cerebral palsy? Yeah, well, Richard, I would say, um, I would say CP or cerebral palsy is a wastebasket term. Okay. So there's, not, there's not really one cause. Okay. 
so historically, people thought that it was likely to be from birth trauma, but it's turning out that that's very rarely the case. It's, it's more often some sort of insult that happened to the mother during pregnancy, a toxin or a virus or some unknown insult that affected the development of the brain during pregnancy. So sort of a wastebasket term. Um, and it's also, it has a wide spectrum as you sort of alluded to in severity. So some people have very mild forms of CP where they might just have a slight limp, for example. And others like my son Graham have a much more severe uh, situation where he couldn't speak, could, uh, couldn't stand up, re required help with everything. Um, and so we had, you know, we had to adjust to that reality uh, little by little after he was was born, and we began to realize how severe his CP was going to be. Hmm. Now, your son, uh, he he lived into his what late teens, early twenties. He lived to be almost twenty three. Richard he died just shy of twenty three. And this was again due to the complications uh, therein. So epilepsy is a frequent companion to cerebral palsy. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, if people have seizures, once in a while they have a particularly bad seizure that sort of short circuits the wiring of the heart and causes a cardiac arrest. Mm. And that's what happened in, in our case. Wow. Yeah. And how long ago was his, uh, I like to refer to it more as a transition uh, yeah. But uh, how long ago did he leave the body? So he left about 10 years ago. Okay. And it left, yeah, left his, left his body about 10 years ago. I like the way you said that because I feel, I feel his presence right now as I'm speaking to you. I think I wouldn't be speaking to you right now if it, if it weren't for his presence in me and his, you know, the goodness and the kindness and the love that was part of his makeup which led to this book, which led to this conversation. Yeah. So yeah, I like to think he's still, he's still around in some other form. You know, it's amazing to think of the, uh, what I call coincidences that take place in our lives that bring us to certain points in our lives. As you went through what you went through with your son, Graham, uh, what I went through with my first wife, uh, and and uh, uh, the different things that we experienced over the 15 years that we were together. She is still alive today. Uh, as far as I know, not experiencing seizures per se. She has other issues that she is dealing with now, but nonetheless. And yet, I never really thought too much about it. I mean, obviously, when I would watch her walk on her own without any uh, support, any crutches, canes, etc., uh, you could tell, yeah, she's, she's got some kind of, now this yeah. is the way I phrase it, okay? For myself, as a legally blind individual, until I was 36, I referred to my blindness as a perceived limitation. Okay. It was only a limitation if I allowed it. Now, some would say, well, yeah, but you can't get into a car and drive if you can't see. You can't go into an airplane and pilot, because one of my dreams was to be a pilot. Well, yeah. that may be true, but what's the point of getting into a car? It's to go from point A to point B. So yeah. there's a bus. I can walk. I love walking. Bicycling. I used to bicycle everywhere in Phoenix where I'm from. Uh, I would get rides from people. And yeah. now, after my lens implant in 96, 
I have made the commitment that if somebody needs a ride, guess what? I'm going to give them a ride because I know what that's like. Good for you. With your son, yeah. Graham, during that period of uh, nearly 23 years, certainly you could see the manifestation of the cerebral palsy. Uh, again, I understand the, the, the garbage can term uh, yeah. or garbage term. But uh, with his condition, um, I would venture that you saw him first and foremost as your son, not your son with cerebral palsy. Precisely. That's well said. And uh, if I may, let me just offer this observation by a, a social worker mm -hmm. uh, regarding the length of his life, which was, as I mentioned, just shy of 23 years. She said to me, uh, it's not how long Graham was here. It's the love he spread while he was here. So that's the concept that we're we, we are embracing and will want to continue to embrace for the rest of our lives and, and truly believe, believe what she said, every bit of it. My first wife and I decided one day that we were going to have for each of us a day of silence. Now, we couldn't both do it on the same day because how would I communicate with her? Uh, vice versa, how is she going to communicate with me? Well, I learned sign language, which she knew. So I was able to communicate with her on my day of silence and vice versa. But we didn't do it on the same day. Uh, and yet she was verbal on other days. How did Graham, who couldn't speak or didn't speak, and that's an interesting distinction I'd like for you to share with us, how yeah. did he communicate with you? So just for your listeners and, and viewers, the difference between uh, vocalize and verbalize. So vocalize means the capability of making sound. Mm -hmm. uh, verbalize means the ability to put those sounds into words that others understand. So Graham, Graham could vocalize, mm -hmm. but not, not verbalize. Um, but I think to, to get to your question, I would resort to um, the philosopher Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, and he, he was having a conversation one day with Piglet, you might remember. Yes, indeed. Piglet said something like, Pooh, how do I spell love? To which Pooh replied, you don't spell love, you feel it. Ah. So to your point, uh, we felt a lot of emotion and a lot of other stuff coming from inside our boy through his beautiful hazel eyes, through his expressions, through his touches. You know, we were constantly hugging the poor guy half to death. <laughs> um, so we communicated really quite eloquently in nonverbal ways. There was some vocalization back and forth, and we, we believe that he understood everything we said. So we believe that he was cognitively all there mm -hmm. and just not really able to, you know, to, to respond to us verbally. Was he in any way, shape, or form able to uh, communicate in a written form? No, we tried a, a bunch of tools, assisted technology, and nothing really stuck. He had, he had trouble um, controlling his hands, so it was hard for him to focus on a keyboard, let's say. Um, so we, we went through a whole litany of things to try to help him that way, and nothing really worked with him. Hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with this television program whose title I am racking my brain to try to remember. 
but it's of a family uh, who has a young man who is a cer uh, is cer has cerebral palsy, and he's in a wheelchair. And they have this board in front of him with all kinds of words, and he wears this headset that has yeah. a red light on it that he can point to the words and yeah. tell people what he's trying to say. Was that something that was tried at all? Is that what you're referring to as some of these boards? Yeah, assisted technology, I think, is the global term for those tools, mm -hmm. um, which maybe leads us into this summer camp called, yeah. called Camp Jabberwocky because we do have lots of those tools down at Jabberwocky that some of the campers are able to take advantage of. Mm. So I'm, I'm happy to introduce the camp now if you want to, or you can, you can lead the way on that. Well, let's do this. Let's tell our listeners. We're talking with uh, our guest, Dr. Steve Graham, about his son, Steve Gardner, about his son, Graham Gardner. And the book is entitled Jabberwocky, Lessons of Love from a Boy Who Never Spoke. And we're going to find out what Jabberwocky is all about. But I have to uh, comment on something on the back cover of your book that I find absolutely fascinating and always a thrill whenever I read something, especially from a rabbi who says, this is a holy book. Now, I'm curious, uh, this is a, a rabbi, Lawrence uh, Kushner. Uh, did, have you had uh, uh, other correspondence or connections with him? And uh, how did he, I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by his description of the book as a holy book. I read his uh, books, uh, Richard, specifically one called The Invisible Lines of Connection, <clears throat> which ex explores the idea that many of us are connected in ways that are not that obvious on the surface. Um, so when I got around to writing my book, I took the liberty of sending him some drafts and to get his take on them. And he was kind enough to review them and, and communicate with me. And he's continued to do that now. Uh, and he believes, and I, and I subscribe to his belief, that there's no such thing as happenstance. There's, there's no such thing as coincidence. There are things that happen in life that, that seem unusual, that seem atypical, that cause us to scratch our heads. And my sense is that when that's going on, that there's probably something else at play here maybe something that we can't articulate or maybe we're not smart enough to express. Um, but I've had a number of experiences like that, which I have shared with uh, Rabbi Kushner. And I think the, the holiness of it, if I'm not, if I'm not uh, misquoting him, is the notion that all of us people are in this thing together, that we all have disabilities, we all have abilities. Um, we are all connected into one community, one human family, whether we realize it or not. Some of the connections are more eth ethereal and some are obvious biological connections. Mm. But at this summer camp in Martha's Vineyard, where our son went, where I was one of the camp doctors, this very eclectic group of people with and without disabilities forms a family by the end of their summer session together in which they care very, very deeply about each other. They also tease one another mercilessly and laugh a lot. They, they argue sometimes, but they dance and they cry and they work together. And in the end, they form something we call the Jabberwocky family, uh, a family in which 
people embrace one another's differences. They're not afraid of one another's differences. And they look at one another with open hearts and open minds. And that's what I think Rabbi Kushner is referring to in that beautiful phrase of his. Jabberwockybook.com is the website we encourage you to go to. We will, of course, be linked to that website, uh, Doctor, so that people can continue their evolutionary process, be inspired by the legacy that your son Graham left behind, uh, but actually continues to, uh, to share through you and your family. Was the diagnosis and condition that your son had from birth... Yes, it was, Richard. Although it takes, it takes a little while to figure that out because, you know, babies reach milestones at certain intervals in their early life, like at two months or four months. And there are kids that are slow to catch up, but do catch up after a while. Mm-hmm. So, so it's hard uh, until a few months have passed to really start to be sure if there's going to be a, a disability or not. So in the beginning, we thought, okay, it's probably going to be very mild. Maybe he won't ride a bike like you were talking about. Uh, But after six months to a year, we realized it was going to be uh, much more involved. How did you uh, feel as a father when all of this started to come down uh, early on in his life? It must have been devastating. It was, it was hard. I'm not sure I'd say it was ever devastating, but it was, it was certainly hard, both physically and psychologically. Hard physically because we had a lot of sleep deprivation, a lot of sleepless nights. Um, we had to lift Graham in and out of cars, in and out of wheelchairs. We had to lift wheelchairs in and out of cars. Um, so in a sense, it was very hard, but the love that seemed to be coming from inside that boy that seemed to create almost an aura around him, made it appear to us that it really wasn't all that hard. Mm. In fact, we used to have uh, conversations with friends who had able-bodied kids, and we would tease our friends with able-bodied kids, and we would, we would say something like, hey, at least we don't have to worry about him shoplifting. <laughs> right? Or at, at least we don't have to worry about him, you know, drunk and disorderly. Or falling and out we, of a tree. Falling out of a tree or coming coming home one night and saying, man, you guys suck as parents. <laughs> you know, it, so he never did any of those things. Yeah. So in a, in a certain sense, it was easy yeah. because it, we, it, it boiled down to love. It boiled down to being with someone that you love. And in the end, by the way, with, reflecting back on, on what you said about your vision, we did learn that there were a lot of things we were going to be able to do uh, that we might not have guessed we would be able to do in the beginning, mm-hmm. like snow skiing, like windsurfing, uh, like riding a two, two-man bike and kayaking, all with adapted technology to make it possible for us. So that, that discouragement maybe from the beginning that, oh my gosh, we're not going to be able to do all this normal stuff slowly dissolved into the realization that we were going to be able to do a lot of that stuff and maybe, and then some. Hmm. Yeah. I, I use this as an example because it's all I have. I have no children, at least not human children. 
but what I do have are animals. And one of the things that I have learned in, in, this, in this case, and I don't know if, if this is a similar lesson that you and your family learned too, is that it is not my job to get my animals to behave in a particular way. My job is to figure out why they are doing what they're doing. Especially when I say to, uh, I say to our dog, Angus, who's a hundred pound big black king shepherd. And, I, and he goes over to the door and we have, there's this, uh, this ring that's on a chain that actually is used as a lock on the inside of the door. You put it over the doorknob, that ring. And the chain is, of course, attached to the door frame. Well, he goes over there because it's hanging down and he hits it with his nose saying, hey, I want your attention. Now, either he needs to go outside or he wants a cookie, which is probably 90% of the time he wants a cookie. Yeah. And we'll say, Angus, come lie down. Come lie down. Come lie down. You know, and, and he is very willful in that respect. Yeah. Uh, our cats, quite similar they are also very willful and, well, as cats are. They just, that's just the way they are. But human beings, they express, uh, you know, usually they will have some kind of an expression as to when they want or need something. And you talk about your son and it's, it sounds to me an awful lot like there was some kind of telepathy going on here at, at some level. Is that is that a fair way of putting it? Because it just that's just kind of what I'm hearing. I think that's a good word for it. Um, while I was writing the book, I did a little bit of research on uh, emotional touch. And I discovered that there are these researchers who actually study uh, the neurology of affection and love. So, for example, a baby can tell a comforting cuddling type of touch from a, a slap on the rear end. Uh, and it turns out we have, we have specific fibers in our fingers and our, our nerve endings mm -hmm. that carry these signals about emotional touch up to the brain. And there's a special part of the brain that processes them. Hospitals have figured this out because they have, they have premature babies that are in these neonatal intensive care units that are really struggling. And they figured out that if somebody comes in, a kind-hearted person comes in and holds that baby in a loving way for a period of hours, those kids do better. Uh, they improve faster. So with Graham, my son, I think it was very rare that he and his mom or he and I were out of touch physically with one another. We were you know, constantly massaging his neck, rub, rub, you know, rubbing our fingers through his hair, patting him on the back. So I think there's a lot of communication of that sort, which probably has a, some scientific basis if you really want to go, you know, dig down deep. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, I know that uh, my former late mother-in-law uh, worked as a nurse for, I don't know, maybe 40 years, 50 years before she retired in the neonatal ICU. And it was one of the most challenging. She, now, she found it challenging in a very positive way. But for a lot of folks, it's probably one of the most challenging experiences one can have because there are times 
When that's all you can do, you also know deep down inside that this little one isn't going to go much further beyond where they are right now. And so you also you have to accept that that is that's yeah. what's going to happen. Richard, uh, that's where I, I, again, I embrace that comment from the social worker mm -hmm. about, about time. I have, I'm, I've been with a colleague and a friend uh, who lost her twin babies. They were essentially stillborn. So she had them literally for a minute or two. She was allowed to hold them for mm -hmm. a minute or two, and then they were gone. So contrasting that with almost 23 years with Graham, which you know felt like we were ripped off, felt like we were shortchanged. Yeah. But when you contrast it, maybe you look at it a little differently. You think, okay, 23 years might have been a pretty good run with a boy that full of love and gentleness and kindness and fun. So that's how we that's how we choose to look at it. And if you went back 50, 100, 150 years, he may have been lucky enough to make it to three. Yeah. Because I can't believe that these kinds of conditions uh, didn't exist uh, back then. I, I, I talk with a lot of people about healing, health and healing. And, uh, you know, what we call this condition today, they called it something totally different, but it was still the same condition, just a different name. Yeah. Which I thought yeah. was rather, rather interesting. We're talking sure. with Dr. Stephen Gardner about his son, written about in his book, that is uh, Dr. Stephen Gardner's book, Jabberwocky, about his son, uh, Graham Gardner. And uh, it is lessons of love from a boy who never spoke. And um, it is an extraordinary story that we're talking here with uh, the doctor about today. What, uh, what particular specialty are you in, doctor? So, Richard, I'm in primary care internal medicine. Okay. Mean over, I mean, over the years, I've been a doc at this summer camp. for This will be my 25th summer. So I have sort of an unofficial specialty mm -hmm. in uh, assisting people with disabilities. But, but otherwise, primary care internal medicine is basically general, general medicine. I participated in... The Special Olympics, I think I was 20, 21 years of age. Now, I brought home a lot of gold medals because I could see well enough. And I even felt guilty for participating because <laughs> I could see well enough and, and, yeah. and so forth. Uh, but I, I still competed and it was great fun. What kinds of activities did... Uh, uh, did Graham uh, participate in? And again, I understand that there was a great deal of uh, support needed in order for him to do this. I'm sure that, uh, well, I'm not sure. Tell me, what, what kinds of, act outdoor, especially outdoor activities, did he like to participate in? Let's see. So I think the first thing we figured out was we could get a big oversized jogger, like a baby jogger with a canvas bottom, and take him out on long walks and long runs. And we realized how much he enjoyed the outdoors. Mm. So uh, after that, we noticed there were some pioneers in our community, like Rick Hoyt and Dick Hoyt, the father and son that were in the Boston Marathon year in and year out. The dad would push his son, Rick. Yes. And they completed 32 of those darn things. An astonishing achievement. So we started scratching our heads and saying, well, you know, maybe 
we could do other stuff. So we got a two-man bike and we participated. I mean, I would pedal in the back. Graham was more or less in a wheelchair in the front. But to paraphrase uh, Dick Hoyt, I felt as if Graham was the athlete and I was just lending him some muscle power. Then we went on and a, a gentleman up in New Hampshire taught us how to do s- snow skiing using a thing called a sit ski where I would snow plow behind it with tethers on either side. And again, we had these really remarkable, uh, almost uh, epiphanic experiences with nature when we realized we could actually get out on the water or out on a mountain and do these things. Mm. Yeah, so, so there were not that many things we couldn't do, as it turned out. Yeah. I have to say that when I was going to school, because of my uh, high level of vision, but still it was in that legally blind category, uh, of 2200 and for those who uh, don't know what that means that's i can see at 20 feet what you can see with 2020 vision at 200 left eye was 2400 and now after the lens implant it's 2080 2050 actually with corrective lenses and i'm now driving great so i'm wondering in terms of his participation in several you know many different activities and so forth uh in school, uh, I'm sure that there was a certain level of protection that he had. But did he ever experience uh, or was ever exposed to any kind of bullying as he was growing? That's a great question. And, and the answer is no. He had, uh, he was, you know, goosed in a sort of silly way by some preteen boys in one classroom. But that's about the worst thing that ever happened in those, along those lines. I wrote about his fourth grade class. He was in a mainstream setting. And his teacher came up with an idea to, to sort of be an icebreaker about having Graham in that classroom. She called it the designated driver. Hmm. And each day, each day she would assign a student to push Graham to all their activities, uh, recess, uh, assemblies, whatever, whatever they were doing that day. And it turned out that being Graham's designated driver became a coveted thing for a fourth grader, an able-bodied fourth grader to do. Wow. Uh, and so this wonderful teacher had this insight by creating this mechanism in which very young people would understand the excitement and the gratification of assisting another person and embracing him into the into their community. So it was quite fantastic, quite the opposite of bullying, actually. Oh, that's fantastic, in, in yeah. more ways than one. Jabberwocky is the title of the book. My guest is the author, Dr. Uh, Stephen Gardner. It is about lessons of love from a boy who never spoke, and I still, I'm going to repeat this again uh, for those who didn't hear it, uh, from Rabbi Lawrence Kushner. This is a holy book. Is the final photograph on the last page of the book of your son shortly in his early 20s? Let me take a quick look, or can you show it to me, Richard? I certainly can. This is, the, uh, this is it right here. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably age 20 or so. Mm-hmm. Good-looking young man. Good-looking young man. He sure was. He sure was a beautiful guy. He could have been in one of those Ralph Lauren ads, no problem. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, but you can also, I think, appreciate in that photograph, there's some sort of light I was, in, in, in his face. And 
Yeah. You know, the conventional wisdom would be to say the light's shining onto his face, but for me, it's almost as if the light's coming from his face. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> you have in the book, of course, uh, uh, credits for the photos and so forth, as well as contact information for uh, Jabberwocky. The, uh, it's actually uh, campjabberwocky.org for those who want to find out more. We're going to talk more about that as we continue talking with our very special guest here on the program, Dr. Stephen Gardner, about his son in the book Jabberwocky, which, of course, is the name of the, uh, the camp that, uh, that we were discussing just a little bit ago. First of all, can you give us a little background on this camp and then how you found out about this? Back in 1953, a determined woman named Helen Lamb was working as a speech therapist outside Boston. And many of her clients or patients were kids with cerebral palsy. And she would go to their homes and she recognized early on that many of them languished during the, the beautiful New England summertime in the sort of dark parlors of their family's homes. And that ticked her off. Uh, it didn't just frustrate her, but it actually made her angry. And she resolved to find a place where she could start a sleepover summer camp for kids with disabilities in a beautiful place where they could enjoy all the you know, the summer magic of the seashore, riding horses, being silly together, being in, in tiny cabins, laughing a lot. So in 1953, sort of um, on a wing and a prayer, she got on a ferry to a place called Martha's Vineyard with three kids in wheelchairs, one young assistant, very little money, and only a minimal plan about what was going to happen when they got over there. But she had a conviction, she had a belief that her dream of a summer camp for kids with disabilities was destined to come true there. And when they arrived on the island, it turned out that the, the people of that community embraced her idea and continue to embrace it to this day, uh, 68 years later. So that's how the place got started. Is there any connection <clears throat> between the work that they do and let's just say... Um... Uh, the, the Make-A-Wish uh, Foundation and other foundations and organizations, nonprofits, who are, uh, they're, they're, they're not about the, the process of curing anybody, but of trying to share with uh, people, both young and old alike, with these kinds of conditions, uh, and I'm going to say limiting conditions, uh, to... Uh, that, that, that are connected with Jabberwocky that, okay, Jabberwocky can't really do this, but we know someone who can. Not in a specific way, Richard, no. Only in sort of, you know, sh shared ph philosophy. Um, we have a relationship um, with the Perkins School for the Blind in Boston, for example, but it's very peripheral. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some sister camps that are, have sprung up from Jabberwocky, one up in Vermont, which is equally wonderful, called Zeno Mountain Farm. It has summer and winter activities. Um, so philosophically, I think Jabberwocky is aligned with a lot of other associations, but it, it remains a small independent operation on Martha's Vineyard. Mm. 
Well, I am certainly glad these different organizations are, and, uh, and in this case, Jabberwocky, Camp Jabberwocky are around uh, to help uh, kids to have as much of a normal life. And then, and then even that is a relative term because what in the Sam Hill is normal? Doc, what? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I do know what you're saying. Um, and by the way, when we, um, when we leave Camp Jabberwocky and go back to the real world, we all share sort of the same question in the back of our minds, which is why can't the real world, the normal world, be more like Camp Jabberwocky? Meaning more playful, more whimsical, sillier, uh, more, more provocative, but in the end, a place where uh, people are not afraid of other people's differences, but they actually um, embrace them with open hearts and open minds. Yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, so in a way, uh, we'd rather have Jabberwocky be normal, the normal thing. Mm -hmm. And then when we go back wherever we came from, make whatever that is more like Camp Jabberwocky. Well, you know, I... I have to say, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I will also tell you that, that my, my first wife, I'm going to share this regardless, um, uh, there was a very angry part of her that felt that the world, I don't want to say owed her, but that was un they were unwilling to consider her. Okay? Um condition almost to the extent okay let's make everybody blind or let's turn all of the lights out in the homes and in the offices and the stores etc etc in other words don't try to put me on your playing field why don't you try mine kind of thing mm -hmm. and i can appreciate the bitterness i had that happen uh, when i was working for um, a warehouse in phoenix uh, that was run by the state, it was a warehouse full of light bulbs. And the warehouse was run most 95% by visually impaired and blind people. And they wow. used this, this uh, they called it Walkman. Yeah. Uh, and you'd wear the headset with the microphone and you'd call out the various commands. I, I worked there for a while. This was before my lens implant. It's how I got my lens implant because it had, I had state uh, insurance, health insurance, and so I was able to do this. But we're talking about light bulbs from the size of a grain of rice to these giant, like, lighthouse bulbs. Now, here's, what, here's the interesting uh, factor in this. Before this warehouse was open, the government used to store and uh, ship to its re re respective places... Uh, uh, that they needed these light bulbs, whether it was for aircraft or whatever. And their breakage rate for delivery breakage rate was up around 25 to 45 percent. But when the blind took over and they did the picking, what we called picking and packing, do you know what our breakage rate was? Less, less than one percent. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lesson in that. Yeah. But it was an extraordinary experience. But the, to the point, I got my lens implant on the 6th of March, 1996, and I was still working at the warehouse. 
Well, when some of the people there found out that I was going to get this lens implant and I was going to be able to see better than before and even better than them, there was, I, I could feel it palpable resentment. Uh, and this is one of the problems that we have, and that is that people cannot be grateful and thankful for somebody's my wife, my my wife at that time, who totally blind wife, made a comment that rings in my ears even to this day. She says, I hope I get to benefit from your new sight. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was the oddest of comments. It's like, well, we're a couple. We're married. We're in a relation. How would you not? You know. Yeah. You know, and of course, obviously, I'm not there today, obviously, but but was there, did you ever feel, did you ever feel that in reference to your son and the sons and daughters of other families, maybe in your neighborhood, and did you ever feel that from your son in terms of uh, his feeling maybe resentful that other people were better off than he was, and he was sort of you know, playing the victim. I never, I never got that sense from Graham. Um, there were times though, <clears throat> excuse me, there were times when he seemed to be in distress, uh, meaning he would grimace, let's say, or he would have some writhing movements, we call athetosis, it would get worse. And I would try to figure out what the heck was bothering him. And I, you know, I was kind of his de facto physician for most of his life because it was a lot easier for me to take care of him than haul him off to a hospital emergency room. Mm -hmm. But in most of those cases, I never could quite figure out what it was that was bothering him. And that, that troubled me. It made me feel guilty. Um, I wondered if I was missing something physical or maybe even missing something psychological that was bothering him that he just couldn't tell me about. Um, but his he had such strength that he, whatever it was, he got himself through those episodes and out the other end. And then he would be smiling again. And that radiance would return to the world from him, even though I was not smart enough to figure out what was bugging him during those periods of time. Mm. It's an extraordinary story. You're going to want to pick up a copy of the book Jabberwocky. Do you, where does the name come from? Because it, it almost sounds like something from uh, Star Wars. Well, back in the 1800s, for some reason, people enjoyed what they called nonsense poems. Okay. And a leading uh, writer of nonsense poems was Lewis Carroll, the, the author of Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. And Jabberwocky was his most famous nonsense poem. So it's, it sounds like something's going on in the poem, but actually nothing's going on. What's in there is a lot, are a lot of interesting words, a lot of interesting images, which Mrs. Lamb, the camp founder, was very fond of. So when she, she founded the camp on Martha's Vineyard, she made the decision to call the camp Jabberwocky. Maybe because she just loved the poem, or maybe because she thought there was some sort of symbolism in the randomness and the, and the, the lack of sense uh, of the poem. Maybe she was trying to say that it, there's no rhyme or reason why some kids have these challenges and some, some kids don't. Uh, I'm not really sure. I never asked her that 
that question. But so it went from being a nonsense poem in the 1800s to being one of the first sleepover camps for people with serious disabilities in the US in 1953. And in my stealing that word for the title of my book, I'm using it almost more as a philosophy, Jabberwocky as a way of looking at other people a little differently, looking at ourselves a little bit differently, um, not being afraid, you know, to, to quarrel or to, you know, to have arguments, but in the end, to make the decision to, to have each other's backs, um, to embrace each other's differences and to to form a community together, a family together. Mm. So for me, for me, the term is really, it's, it's obviously the place that I love on Martha's Vineyard, but it's also a philosophy of life. Do you still go to Camp Jabberwocky? Do you still uh, support and work with the people there as well as the, the kids, the, the campers, as it were? Richard, when Graham passed away 10 years ago, his mom and I had to make a, a tough decision. We, we knew that if we went back as volunteers, it would be painful to be there without him in this magical place. We'd shared so many great memories with him. But we also knew that if we went back, we would be nurtured and warmed by the people of Jabberwocky. And there, there would be no other place on earth that would give us more uh, reassurance and Jabberwocky love than, than doing that. So we went back. Um, so I've continued now, this will be my 25th summer, minus last year for the pandemic where we had to cancel it for the very first time. So, uh, so I had 13 years with Graham and now I've had about 11 going on 12 with him not there physically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about your your faith. I would have to believe that at one point in this journey, uh, you had to feel quite tested, kind of a little bit, little bit like Job, maybe. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But again, I think that the day-to-day -day, uh, love for Graham and from Graham just offset that. Um, and, you know, at some point we realized, I guess, that he was, he was influencing us, his mom and dad, in a certain way. But also other people around him were sort of astonished by this light, this ethereal quality coming from inside him. Um, so it, it was hard to feel resentful, uh, even when we got very tired. Um, it just, I mean, it, that might sound a little Pollyanna-ish, Pollyanna but... Uh, I don't remember ever feeling uh, resentful. Um, certainly, certainly, I must have been angry at times, and maybe I've glossed over that a little bit in my memory. What about um, what about your relationship? <clears throat> that, as we talked at the front end of the program, we encourage people to uh, spend time during the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, going within. What about your relationship with your God? You, you know your inner voice, your intuition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What? Uh, yeah. uh, how is how has that changed and developed, or evolved, if you will? So there's another uh, Rabbi Kushner. Um, we talked about Lawrence Kushner earlier. Um, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book called "When Bad Things Happen to Good People," mm -hmm. 
And in that book, he, he, um, he wonders if God can be both good and omnipotent. Because if God were omnipotent, that would mean that God wanted these bad things to happen, like the Holocaust, for example. Um, so it, I think re- that Rabbi Kushner, Harold Kushner, concluded that God does not want bad things to happen to people, especially children, um, but that God can be present in the love that comes from and surrounds those people when adversity occurs. So that, that's the take on it that I've chosen to embrace. Uh, one of my own patients wrote me a note when Graham passed away. He was a theology student, and we'd had this discussion about when God, whether God can be good and omnipotent. So I hit him with a question, and he wrote me a note, and he said, when Graham passed away, God was the first one to cry. So that, that resounded with me and still does. Um, bad things happen to good people all the time. And the best way we can respond to the randomness of it is, is with love. It sounds simple. Uh, I mean, the Beatles, have, the Beatles talked about that 40 years ago. We've been learning that lesson over and over again for a long time. But I think it's just, it's that simple. At the end of the day, it's all about love. What about your relationship with your wife? How has that changed? So we ended up uh, splitting up. And uh, Graham was fairly young, maybe three or four years old. But we agreed to, to share uh, the responsibilities for care, caring for him. And we agreed to remain his advocates, his primary advocates for the rest of his life. And we are to this day even though we no longer live under the same roof. Mm-hmm. Uh, was, was there any part of Graham that had any kind of an influence in that split? Even if it was ancillary? I think, curiously, Graham probably kept the marriage together longer than it would have otherwise been. Um, rather than contributed to breaking it up. Um, that's my take on it. You'd have to ask Graham's mom her take on it. Mm-hmm. She, might, she might have a different take. But, I, you know, I think we, we, we wanted to hang in together and do our best to give this boy the best possible quality of life for as long as we could. Mm-hmm. In the end, we ended up accomplishing that, but separately. And today, what is your relationship like? Obviously, you're separated. You're not living in the same place anymore. It's a great relationship today. In fact, uh, she's a big fan of the book. I think she's she's a star in the book and many of the stories. Um, so that she she recognizes that. But um, I think the book is a celebration primarily of Graham, but also of his mom, the power of an incredibly loving, strong mom, and. The same thing could be said for the power of having a loving dad, too. Um, yeah. Do you find that a lot of uh, couples who have children, let's say going through Jabberwocky, they end up having to face and sometimes even go through what you and your, uh, your former wife uh, had to go through and went through? You know, I'm not sure if it's different from the general population, Richard, as far as, say, divorce rates. 
uh, it's certainly challenging, obviously, to have a profoundly disabled child. You can't sugarcoat that. Yeah. And so it probably, it prob- my guess is it probably does accelerate the demise of some marriages. Yeah. Uh, but I, I can't cite statistics that would support that. Right. Well, it, to me, uh, it's extraordinary that you two worked together for a period of time during his life and even after his, uh, his transitioning out of the body. Uh, and yet he continues his legacy through the two of you and through the folks at Jabber, Camp Jabberwocky, as well as through the book Jabberwocky. And uh, I think that, that that's an extraordinary thing for someone to have accomplished who never spoke a word, but was still able to communicate in ways that you were able to pick up on. I, I, th- I think that that's rather extraordinary because you and I both know the stereotypical male doesn't cry, doesn't show emotion, uh, you know, and the last, you know, I, I even think of... Uh, uh, I, even, <laughs> I even think of the character Murray on the, Gold, uh, the uh, Goldbergs uh, television program. He was always referring to his kids as morons, you know. Uh, and yet every once in a while he has these incredible insights and he just, it's like his, his aha moment. Oh, I need to be a little yeah. bit more, I need to soften up a little bit here, you know. And I find that, yeah. that that's, that's a challenge for a lot of us guys. So, uh I, I mentioned in my book, Washington Irving stated that uh, there is a sacredness in tears. Mm. They are the messengers of grief and they are the messengers of unspeakable love. I think I'm quoting him correctly there. So, so I, I don't mind crying, admitting that I cry um, a lot and it feels good. Yeah. Um, and again, well, there's probably a hormonal basis for that too. Like we talked about the, the emotional touch. Yeah. Uh, when, when we release tears, we're probably letting our cortisol level go down, our stress level, and maybe our endorphins go up or something like that. But yeah, I think I think crying is. I mean, with the crying I do now about Grant is crying out of joy. Mm. Or let's say it's ninety percent out of joy and ten percent out of grief. Early on, it was probably the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to say that as a kid growing up, <clears throat> and maybe this has to do, as you say, hormonally with the fact that I had four sisters along with a mother and I had one brother and a father <clears throat> and we'd watch Little House on the Prairie and other types of movies or uh, television shows. And I had the I get choked. I got choked up and I would have the tears. Wouldn't necessarily cry out. I kind of keep it to myself over in the corner kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I would, I would get weepy, uh, when watching those kinds of programs. Cause it was like, it was so touching. Um, right. Curry, yeah. Well, I, we feel that way all the time at Camp Jabberwocky. Yeah. I feel like I'm about to cry 24 hours a day because of what I'm witnessing there. Yeah. What, a, what about your upbringing and your parents and, and, <clears throat> and, uh, siblings and so forth? Uh, uh, tell me a little bit about how that has played into uh, the work that you have, have done uh, during the nearly 23 years uh, with Graham, uh, but also even, even maybe even before that. I mean, it seems to me that uh, what you shared with him while he was in body uh, was a part of you already. 
And I'm curious as to whether that was something that maybe your family or parents maybe instilled in you at some level. If it was either parent, Richard, it was my mom. Um, she was a serene, graceful, kind, uh, spirited woman. And uh, I think probably without, it, without any formal teachings, it was more osmosis being around this, this lovely, lovely human being uh, made me want to, you know, be like her uh, mm -hmm. when, I, when I grew up. Uh, and I, you know, I wanted to, to be proud, to be a compassionate soul. Um, I still wanted to be a ball player when I grew up. I had, you know, normal childhood idols and stuff. But I think probably, if to, to your point, if, if it came from anybody in my immediate family, it was from my mom. She was a soulful, gracious, kind, lovely human being. And uh, aside from Graham, any other children? No, he was, uh, he was it. So um, the Jabberwocky campers are sort of uh, surrogates in a way, I guess, many, many of them. Uh, they feel like very much like family, um, and you know we try to we try to keep it going when we're when we're away from camp. We only get to go to camp for up to a month during the summer, and uh, it's a bit challenging, you know, to try to keep people together during the other eleven months. But we we make an effort to do it in different ways. Yeah. Well, I know that we've learned. Uh, through this past year, 2020, we've learned of ways of doing that, obviously, as you and I are conversing here on Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. And so it has, it certainly uh, taught us a lot about how to stay connected, at least in the best way that we possibly can under certain yeah. circumstances. Yeah. Uh, so I would, I would think that maybe this summer might be a, might be a, a good, uh, a good summer that maybe folks will get together again. Yeah, you know, in the physical at the camp and so forth there on Martha's Vineyard. Am I correct yeah. that there are no? Is it is it Martha's Vineyard that has no cars? Uh, it has cars, but no traffic lights. <sighs> okay. <laughs> but uh, the rate limiting variable, Richard, is is the number of ferries that go over there. So yeah, yeah. Uh, hope if they don't let more ferries go, then the traffic won't get any worse than it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, that's what they say. If you find a, a wonderful little little small town somewhere where you want to live because it's so small and quaint and, yeah, everybody knows your business and you know everybody else's business, eventually a bunch of people are going to move there and it's not going to be a small town anymore. And that's the, yeah. that's the downside. I, I used to think about that in terms of finding that one place on the planet that was, that was, yeah. it was just all mine. But if I could find it, then so could everybody else. <laughs> no, uh, it, that community has embraced Camp Jabberwocky. And as you probably know, Martha's Vineyard is one of those summer enclaves mm -hmm. where there's some very entitled uh, people end up going with very deep pockets. Uh, but having said that, the island has continuously embraced Jabberwocky over the years and Without the support and the love of the people of that island, Jabberwocky wouldn't exist. Yeah. So it's contributed its own unique piece to the fabric of this beautiful island. And I think most of the islanders realize that the island's a hell of a lot more interesting now with Jabberwocky part of it than it would be otherwise. Um, yeah. 
just with a you know with an unlimited number of yacht yacht clubs and golf clubs and, stuff. and I think the same thing can be said about your community uh, and you uh, with with uh, without you your community wouldn't be what it is today either and the contribution that you are making especially through your book Jabberwocky lessons of love from a boy who never spoke is this your first uh, uh, endeavor as far as uh, book writing it, it is, Richard. I've written short, some short pieces. Um, in fact, if your listeners want to go to jabberwockybook.com, they would be able to read a short piece I wrote about the three months I spent in Haiti uh, after the earthquake. But, mm-hmm. So I've, done, I've written some short, short pieces like that, sort of philosophical pieces about some humanitarian experiences that I've had. But this is the first crack at a real book. Mm. Well... I think uh, I think that um, it would be behoove everyone to go to uh, your website again. It is called it's jabberwockybook.com. Okay, I'll yep. spell it J A B B E R W O C K Y B O O K dot com, and uh, you can find out more about uh, Dr. Steve Gardner, as well as his son Graham, and the work that uh, they and the family have done. Uh, to to help others as well, and uh, we are very grateful for uh, for the opportunity to have uh, brought this story and and uh, you uh, to our listeners here on uh, Tell Me Your Story. Yeah, Richard, thank you for having me on for such a long time. You bet. I thank you so much. Oh, again, my guest is uh, Dr. Steve Gardner, and Steve, I have one more uh, set of three questions I'd like to ask you that I ask all of my guests at the end of the program. You may have addressed them during the program, but I like to ask them directly. Uh, before I do that, I want to let you know, folks, that uh, this program is here four times a week on this fine station, 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. on Sunday and 1 a.m. Monday morning, and then 9 a.m. Wednesday for the special edition of Tell Me Your Story. We also podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and other locations that uh, you folks are reposting to, and thank you for doing that. We're on YouTube. Tell Me Your Story is the channel, so we hope that you will go there. And then um, we also also want you to uh, uh, participate in the Decade of Perfect Vision by uh, going within, spending a little time. You can call it what you want, prayer, meditation, just quiet time, you know, and uh, just relax, listen to that still, small voice, and, and uh, know, that, uh, know that you're taken care of. The universe is there to, uh, to help us, and uh, uh, certainly through uh, the work that our guest and his family have done uh, for uh, not only for Graham, but for others through the writing of the book. I hope that you will go to jabberwockybook.com. We also hope that you will support this program financially, uh, and whatever you can contribute, we would be grateful for. You can go to our homepage where there's a link to both PayPal and Patreon accounts. That's for your security as well as ours. And uh, we thank you so much for anything that uh, those who have contributed and for those who will contribute. So we get to uh, the part of the program that I actually kind of enjoy because you never know what kind of answers you're going to get. And uh, whatever answers come, uh, please uh, just go ahead and share them. First of three questions is, who is Steve Gardner? Steve Gardner is a caregiver who has had the blessing of learning about kindness and love from a plethora of 
of gracious and compassionate souls, some of whom are very, very young, teenagers. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? The Jabberwocky family is about belonging, about the feeling that we all have, I think, that we want to belong to something greater than ourselves. And in that place, we all belong together. We experience the opposite of loneliness. And I would, I would love it if we could export that feeling off the island when we leave at the end of the summer. And to a greater extent, bring, bring that ethos into what seems to be quite a troubled world at large all, all around that island. And finally, what is your life's purpose? Well, I think, I mean, it's quite possible that leaving this book behind is going to be one of my life's legacies. And I think uh, in terms of purpose, it's just to, to treat other people to the extent that I'm capable with an open heart and an open mind. Uh, throughout the days of my life and to try to embrace as many of them as possible. Well, doctor, I thank you again, Dr. Steve Gardner, uh, for uh, this time today, as well as for the book, Jabberwocky. Go to jabberwockybook.com. Again, we will be linked to your website, and we really do appreciate uh, the insights you've given us into yourself and your son, your family, and the work that you're doing through the camp, Camp Jabberwocky. Uh, as well. I'm Richard Dugan, and I thank you for listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to love.